to have you with us, whether you are a regular here week in, week out, or whether you are just visiting today, maybe looking in uh, and checking out the church here, or maybe you were climbing next door and you just thought, I wonder what that is in that room, and you've poked your head in to see. You're so welcome to be with us this afternoon. My name's Owen, and I have the privilege of being part of the leadership team here at Foundation Church, and I want to say to those who are regulars here, it's so good to be back with you. Uh, So many of you will know, some of you won't. My family and I have been away for most of the last uh, kind of four, four and a half, five weeks. Uh, I've been on something of a sabbatical, uh, a a deliberate and purposeful break from work to take time out, to be refreshed, to walk and pray uh, and to refresh myself in God. And I'm so grateful for you releasing me to do that over these last weeks. It's been a really fruitful time uh, and I've come back refreshed and excited, and particularly so today to be starting a new series in Hebrews. Now, if you have been a Christian for any length of time and you've read through your Bible, you will know that Hebrews is one of the less straightforward New Testament books. And I've never preached it before because I've always been somewhat daunted. I love it. I love reading it. I love studying it. I love praying through the the book of Hebrews, but I've never preached it before because it it just feels quite substantial and slightly less easy than some of the other New Testament letters and even a lot of the stuff we find in the Old Testament. But we're going to be spending a considerable length of time together working through Hebrews. And we're going to do this much like we often do. So we, we are going to work verse by verse, line by line, uh, as we head through Hebrews. Uh, and we're going to do that over much of the next year. Not solidly. We'll take some breaks. We'll punctuate this with other short series. But we're going to spend most of the next year together working through Hebrews. And uh, today, as we come to the first few verses, I want to give you some context, a bit of background So as we understand the book, we know what we're coming to. And so we're going to start at a very simple level to set it in context. Hebrews is a book in the Bible. It's important to state that and to make sure we're clear on that. And as such, I want to say, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be reading from them in a moment. Please get them out. If you don't have one, there are some on the table at the back. I'd encourage you to grab one and you can have it as a free gift from us to you, I would always encourage you when you hear someone claim to be speaking from the Bible to get one out and check it for yourself. Don't just take my word for it that this is what it says. Read it for yourself. So Hebrews is a book in the Bible which is made up of 66 books. The Bible is a, a book of books or a, a kind of mini library, if you will. And Hebrews is one of which... The Bible's split into two halves. The first one, the Old Testament, deals broadly with creation until the birth of Jesus, or just before. And then the New Testament covers from the birth of Jesus into the birth of the church, with a primary focus then on the events in the early church, mostly written in the first century AD. New Testament letters are generally really easy to date. They're really easy to know when they were written. And 
because of the context, and they're also generally easy to know who wrote them, because most of them are letters, and they tell you at the start who wrote them. But Hebrews is slightly trickier today, although from events we can be reasonably confident from the historical information we have surrounding it, the content of Hebrews, that it was written somewhere after AD 60 and somewhere before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So it's written somewhere in the AD 60s. That's when Hebrews was written. Hebrews is not easy to identify who wrote. And in fact, there has been a lot of speculation, unsurprisingly, about who may have written Hebrews. There's been lots of different ideas and theories and hypotheses. But the truth is, we don't know. We don't actually know who wrote Hebrews. What we do know, though, is this, and these are important things. We, we do know that they were highly educated. They wrote in very eloquent Greek. Hebrews is, is like the most kind of eloquent and just very, very well-written Greek compared with much of the New Testament. They were highly educated. The book is also very theologically rich, which is part of the reason that it's daunting to go through together and shows that the author had a very clear grasp and understanding of Jewish culture and teaching and of the Jewish scriptures and traditions and how those find their fullness in Jesus. And Hebrews deals with that at length. We also know that whoever wrote this book was a second-generation Christian. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean they didn't walk and talk with Jesus as a man. Okay, So they weren't one of the apostles. They weren't one of the, the earliest disciples in that sense. Someone else proclaimed the gospel to them, and they believed, just like you. And he, the writer says that in chapter 2, verse 3. It says it was declared first by the Lord Jesus and attested to us by those who heard. So in other words, Jesus proclaimed this good news and those who heard it then passed it on to us. It was attested to us by those who had heard Jesus say it. Okay, so they, that dates them a little bit and helps us understand this is someone from a Jewish background. They're highly educated. And they've heard the good news message of Jesus proclaimed by someone else and they've received that and accepted and believed for themselves. And whoever it was that wrote this book, we also see throughout that they have a deep pastoral concern and care for the first readers first century Jewish Christians who were their kind of primary audience at the time of writing. See, the church, at the point this was written, in that window between AD 60 and AD 70, was facing intense persecution. Intense persecution. And the temptation for Jews who had converted to Christianity and who were following Jesus... The temptation for them in the face of 
persecution would have been to return to the relative comfort or security of Judaism. That would have been a real temptation. They've counted the cost in following Jesus. And they, they would be facing persecution for that. They would most likely have lost friends, been ostracized to a certain extent from their communities, been rejected probably by family because of their faith in Jesus. This is the case for many Christians around the world today as well. And maybe to a lesser extent, you've experienced something of that. For saying, I'm following Jesus, trusting in him. Maybe at a very light level, you've had people say, don't be ridiculous. You're believing in fairy tales. Just jibes from friends. Or maybe at a more serious level, some of you have faced rejection from people for your beliefs, for your faith. Well, that would have been the case for the first audience of this book. They've left things behind in order to follow Jesus. It has implications for their relationships, for their life, for all of it. And they were feeling the tension and tug of that reality. And the temptation to, to kind of go back on that, to settle back into comfort. Maybe you are to a certain extent today too. Maybe there are moments where you think, oh man, like it's just too hard. Maybe there are certain relationships that, that has, it's cost you to follow Jesus and you're questioning, is it worth it? Maybe there are things that actually you know priorities have had to change in your life as a result of following Jesus, as a result of living in obedience to him. I can't do that anymore because <laughs> I want to please him. I want to honor him. And actually, that feels costly. And the temptation to, to turn away from Jesus and to return to that old way of being, return or to just kind of dull things down in order to enjoy that relationship again instead of pursuing Jesus. In one way or another, I think all of us face those temptations, don't we? If we're honest, at times. Even at a very subtle level, just to, just to kind of acquiesce to what the culture would say instead of what Christ would say, we, we face that temptation. Well, the writer to the Hebrews writes to encourage them and encourage us. He writes to Focus their gaze, focus their attention on the supremacy of Jesus in all things. And over and over again, we find in this book of Hebrews as well, warning against falling away from Jesus, against following those temptations or slipping back into the comfortable. And over and over again, through this book, the same message is repeated. Jesus is better. Whatever you've left behind, Jesus is better. Whatever you're tempted to return to, Jesus is better. Whatever you're tempted to place your security in, 
your hope in, whatever you're tempted to, to try and place your identity in, Jesus is better. All of the other so-called good news proclamations and worldviews are hollow and powerless compared to the glorious good news of Jesus Christ. That, that's the resounding message that we're going to read over and over again through Hebrews. And I want to say we need that message today. I don't know about you, I need that message today. But my suspicion is if you're a Christian, you need that message today too, just as much as they did. We're constantly bombarded with competing worldviews that would seek to lead us away from Jesus, that would seek to draw our eyes off him and onto other things. We need to hear this message. As we count the cost, we can feel the temptation to turn back, to give up and walk away from Jesus. We need to hear this message. And in these first few verses that we're going to read together today, the writer to the Hebrews wastes no time whatsoever in beginning to unpack this great and glorious truth. So we're going to read together from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. If you've got your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open it up. The words will be on the screen, so you can read along there if you don't have one. But let's read together, shall we? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to begin to unpack that together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that we sung as we worshiped together, the truths that Will read out to us from Colossians earlier, that Jesus, you are supreme above all things. We ask now that you would just send your spirit. Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we read your word together. I pray that you would help us to, to, to understand and to take your word into our hearts, that it might bear fruit in our lives in the days and weeks, years to come. Lord, we ask, would you speak to us? We thank you that you have spoken through your word. We pray, Lord, would you help us to understand it and apply it now for your glory and for the good of those around us, we ask. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Good. Well, as I said, we're going we're gonna to chew through these verses together now, verse by verse, line by line, and, and see how does the writer to the Hebrews start this book as he seeks to lift our gaze to the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's look. We begin by reading these words. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. 
Well, we learn straight up front, no uncertainty, no ambiguity. God is a speaking God. God reveals himself to people through his word. And these verses are referring to the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament as we have it now. One God speaking to his people. One message. He's not silent or remote or disinterested, but God has been speaking. We're not to disregard that word. He has been speaking through poetry and narrative and wisdom literature and proverbs and parables and love songs and more in various ways. At many times, over a period of hundreds of years, the Old Testament was written through the prophets. Now, when he refers to the prophets, not just Isaiah, Jeremiah, Mount, you know, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, not just those books, but he's referring to all of the writers of the Old Testament. Through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah, Solomon and more, God has been speaking to his people. One God revealing his will and his ways to his people through his word. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You'll notice as you read the Bible, there, there are lots of buts that are these kind of turning points. Statement, this is true. God has been speaking through the years to his people. But now, something has shifted. Something has changed. But now, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In contrast to the former days where he spoke to many, many people over a very long period of time, now he has definitively once and for all, spoken through his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. His word embodied, exemplified, perfect. As though God was saying, all of these years I've been telling you what I'm like. As I've spoken through the prophets, as I've spoken to my people, and now in my Son I'm showing you the living word. This doesn't diminish or weaken what was spoken in the Old Testament. Okay, we're not supposed to read this and go, oh, but now he's spoken to his son, so we just ignore all of that. <laughs> no, it was God speaking. It is God's word still to us today. It's the same God still speaking. He doesn't change. Instead, what this means is it clarifies the Old Testament for us means that now as we read it, we read it Christologically, which is just a fancy word to say we read it in the light of Jesus. We read it in, through the lens of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, that Jesus, as the definitive word of God, affects the way we read the Old Testament. When we read about David and Goliath, we read that actually... Jesus is the new and better David. He's the one who rescues us from our sins. 
He's the one that rescues us from the giants of sin and death. Just as the Israelites needed rescuing, they needed a champion in David, we have a true champion in Christ Jesus. As we read the Old Testament, we understand it fully in the light of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. What else do we see here about God speaking by his son? Well, it says, in these last days. Now, we just read that and we think, oh, like these are the days after the ones before. Like we, we kind of must be near the end of something, these last days. But, but to the first readers, that phrase meant something. It was loaded with meaning. Because throughout the Old Testament, we look forward to these last days. As they read it, there was no mistaking it for them, and there must be no mistaking it for us. In these last days, is loaded with meaning. It means the days in which God's saving promises for his people are fulfilled. These were the days which his first readers had been looking forward to with eager expectation as they read Promises in Isaiah about the, the coming Messiah. As they read, or as they retold the stories right back to Genesis of the one who would come and crush the serpent's head, the seed of a woman who would come and overcome Satan once and for all. They'd been looking forward to these last days. And the writer to the Hebrews says, they're here. <laughs> You're in them, and we're in them now. These are the days in which God's saving promises for his people are fulfilled. And these last days arrived with someone. They arrived with the coming of the Son, with Jesus. He, he doesn't want them to miss, and he doesn't want us to miss the significance of Christ Jesus, the fulfillment of God's promises to his people through the generations. The promises of the Old Testament find their true fulfillment in Jesus. We understand the rescue plan that God has spoken long ago, now, in the last days with the arrival of the living word, Jesus Christ. The hopes of all of God's people are met in him. God has spoken definitively. Through him, the word that Jesus came to speak was that the salvation for God's people had come in him, for all who hope in him. Rescue, restoration to right relationship with the Father. This was the word that Jesus came to speak. This was the word that the Father spoke now in these last days. Through Christ. Rescue was possible. Salvation has come for all who trust in him. Who is this Christ? The definitive living word of the Father? Well, we carry on. Who is he? He's the one who's been appointed the heir of all things. What does that mean? He's the ruler of all things. He is the heir, 
the true ruler and king of all creation, of all things. He carries on. And through whom he also made the universe. He rules over all and he created all. Jesus created all things by the power of his word. Through this living word, the universe was spoken into being. We read also, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Who is it sustaining all things? Jesus. You're alive now. Because he's sustaining you. That's what the Bible teaches. You're breathing in and out right now because he's sustaining you. There's blood coursing through your veins right now because he's sustaining you. It's a strange kind of picture for us to get our head around. I heard someone explain it once like this. Imagine a jazz musician with a trumpet playing. For as long as they're exhaling, the note sounds. They're sustaining that note. But the moment they cease to exhale, it stops. The sound is gone. The music ceases. That's how this universe is. With Jesus, the living word. He's sustaining right now. All this beauty. All that you see and enjoy. He's sustaining. There's no one like him. There's no one like him. We read on from verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He's the exact representation of the Heavenly Father. If you... you Read the Gospels. You see the life of Christ. How he engaged with people. How he spoke to people. How he treated people. How he loved people. How he extended compassion. How he taught and provided for needs and served people. That's the character of the Father being outworked. That's what this passage is saying. If you want to know what God the Father is like, you Look at the life of Jesus, the living word, expressing perfectly what the Father is like. The glory of the Father expressed, being outworked. And so this ruling, creating, sustaining, Lord of lords and King of kings, The true and living word. There's no one like him. He's he's better than anyone or anything else you could possibly imagine. He did something else. Many of you will know this, but we need to remind ourselves. We read on. It says, after making purification for sin. See, Christ came. The living word. made purification for sin. He went to the cross to sacrifice himself in your place that you could be forgiven, that you could receive life 
everlasting. The, the writer deliberately uses temple language here, this picture of purification for sins. He's drawing a deliberate parallel with the Old Testament sacrificial system that his first readers would have been familiar with in the temple that required the, the blood of animals to be spilt for the forgiveness of sins, the purification of sins. So the Bible is clear from beginning to end, actually, that, that God is the giver of life. And when we reject him, what we earn for ourselves is death. It's very simple, isn't it? If you reject the giver of life, what you reap instead is death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And throughout the Old Testament, we see these vivid pictures played out in the temple of blood, of sacrifice, because that's what sin earns. But they never truly paid for the sins of people. We read that later in more detail in this book of Hebrews. But they're pointing us forward to Jesus who though he knew no sin, would take upon himself all of your sin, all of your rebellion, all of your rejection of the giver of life, as though it were his own, and would go to the cross and bear the penalty for that in himself. If you trust in him, that you might know forgiveness. It's a simple truth. But it's the most powerful truth there is. Jesus, the perfect, spotless, once and for all sacrifice that would atone for, deal with your sins once and for all. And what did he do? Having done that, we read, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down at the right hand. He sat down because his work was complete. The price was paid. This this being seated is supposed to communicate to us. His, His work is finished. There's nothing else to pay for your sins. There's nothing else for you to do in order to earn salvation, in order to make yourself right with God. It has been done. Completely, purification for sins has been secured by the finished work of Jesus. And where is he sat? He's seated at the right hand of the majesty. The right hand is symbolic of the place of power and authority and triumph or deliverance. These verses are loaded with imagery that's supposed to help us understand how great and glorious Jesus is and how decisive and full and complete his victory was on our behalf. He's seated at the right hand in the place of authority and triumph and victory. Like everything that we miss so much because we don't understand all the cultural imagery of this. But this is an incredible picture It's supposed to leave us in awe. It's supposed to leave us just going, wow, there really is no one who could compare to Jesus 
Like, who else created all of this? Who else is sustaining right now by the power of his word? Who else could pay for your sins? Who else could bring you back into right relationship with God? Who else is seated now at the right hand of the Father in heaven with authority and power, triumph? No one compares to him. See, we see different characters through the Old Testament that are supposed to as well kind of help us understand something of the character of God. And you might have heard people talk about prophets, priests, and kings in terms of the way God rules. And these verses right here help us to see Jesus as the ultimate, as the true prophet, priest, and king of his people. Because prophets declare the word of God. They, they speak forth the word of God to people. What prophesying is. Well, in these last days, he has spoken to us definitively, fully, perfectly in the person and work of Jesus. He's the true prophet. He's the priest through whom we find final and full cleansing from our sin. He's made purification. And he's the true king who is reigning at God's right hand. All that the Old Testament has been pointing towards finds its fulfillment in Jesus. There's nobody like him. All that you need, all your hopes are met in him fully, completely. There's no better word to hear. There's no mightier ruler to submit your life to. There's no more just and perfect king. And what is this son? The true and better word, the radiance of the father, the creator and sustainer doing right now at the right hand of the father? What's he doing now? Having made purification for your sins? Well, we find the answer later in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, we read this about Jesus. That he always lives to intercede for us. That if your hope is in him, he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, speaking to the Father on your behalf. Saying, they're mine. That sin, dealt with, covered, paid for at the cross, atoned for, purified, they're holy, they're righteous, they're mine, forgiven. We, we read the same truth elsewhere. Romans 8.34 tells us that he's interceding for us. It's exactly the same phrase. 1 John 2.1 tells us about Jesus that he is an advocate for us with the Father, that we have him now in heaven at the right hand, an advocate the Father, he's speaking in the true and living word who made purification for our sins, who spoke through his life, death, and resurrection, is speaking now, still, at the right hand of the Father. He's speaking a better word. For those who trust in him, he's praying for you right now. 
and he's speaking a better word to the Father than your actions and words do. When you fall short, he's there at the right hand of the Father, saying, forgiven, mine, loved, not, not judged on their actions, judged on my blood spilt at the cross on their behalf. Declaring over and over and over again, not guilty, forgiven, mine. He's faithful and just to forgive. We need to hear this. Jesus is the better word. He's better. See, when you sin, what do you tend to hear? Condemnation. Failure. You've done it again, haven't you? Blown it. Call yourself a Christian. You just can't stay away, can you? We hear those kinds of things, don't we? We have an enemy who would seek to condemn you. Now, I don't want to belittle your sin. Okay? Scripture is full of actually instruction that actually, if, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves <laughs> and we're liars. But if we acknowledge our sin and we come to him and ask forgiveness, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so instead of hearing failure, Instead, we can hear, not forsaken, forgiven, my beloved. We constantly hear the hollow and feeble promises of the world too, right? Like, <laughs> I mean... I, I think advertising is like a, an incredibly helpful lens <laughs> into this kind of stuff. Like, it, in a very subtle way, we are constantly being sold messages through advertising that that holiday will make me as handsome and ripped as that guy on the advert. And it, it didn't work. Or <laughs> those hair straighteners. Like, they will get you the guy you always wanted to have. Or whatever it is. That's how advertising works, isn't it? And amazingly, we fall for it. We see these picture-perfect scenarios, and we go, I need one. <laughs> we buy the product. And at, at, at a bigger level, at, <laughs> that's how temptation works, actually. It's how the devil works with us. He tells us, you, like, you, you do that. You'll, you'll be satisfied. You'll be fulfilled. You look at that. You'll, you'll be happy. You get that. You pursue that. It will work. Trust me, it will work. And it doesn't. It doesn't. It leaves us exhausted, chasing after things that never deliver on their promises, 
And ultimately, it leads us to destruction and separation from God. But Jesus speaks a true and better word. He says, come to me, all who are thirsty. I will give you streams of living water. I'll satisfy you. Come to me. And know sins forgiven, conscience cleansed. Come to me and find life and life in all its fullness. Jesus speaks a true and better word. You know, Jesus' first disciples had grasped this. There's a moment in Jesus' earthly ministry when his teaching and his words clashed with culture. And following him was going to cost dear because it made people just look silly. I don't know if you've ever experienced that in any of your relationships with people. Actually, the teaching of Christ, the teaching of Scripture is at odds with culture in such a way that it's, it's uncomfortable. Well, it happened, and a, and a large crowd of those who'd been following him around, and teacher, we love you, you're amazing. A large crowd at this point turned their backs on him and walked away because the cost was too much. They opted for the easier and ultimately more hollow option. And he turned to some of his disciples and asked them if they were going to abandon him too. And some of you might be familiar with this interaction. And Jesus turned to them and he says, like, guys, like, aren't you going to go as well? And Peter, one of his disciples, turned to him. And said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's like, where else are we going to go, Jesus? There's no one else like you. You're the true and better word. You have the words of eternal life. When you've seen Jesus, the revelation of the Father, the true prophet, priest, and king, the one who has the words of eternal life, who else could you turn to? I mean, we'd be crazy to look anywhere else, wouldn't we? <laughs> so who else would we turn? You have the words of eternal life, Jesus. The writer to the Hebrews wanted to start this book, making it abundantly clear that Jesus speaks the better word. We need to come to him and hear. We need to give him our attention. We need to listen to him more attentively than we listen to the words of culture to the empty promises of society. I want to call you today to come back, to listen again to Jesus, the better word. 
to consider. I want to ask you to consider. We're going to come and share communion together in a moment. I want to ask you to consider where are you tempted to take the path of least resistance? For the first readers, it would have been to to slide back into Judaism and the, the comfort of that. My guess is that's not your temptation. In fact, actually, when you read the, the traditions and the law and the sacrificial system, I think, man, it sounds like a lot of hard work. That isn't my temptation. But what is it for you? Where are you tempted to give ear to? What word are you tempted to listen to, to fill your head and feed your heart on? Which voice is ringing loudest in your ears? Culture or Christ, the true and living word? Where have you begun to place your hope? To which king have you submitted your life? Whose rule and reign have you surrendered to? The writer to the Hebrews wants to call us back. And I want to call you back today to listen again to Jesus, the true and better word. Maybe as we come to share communion in a moment, some of you have sat today and, and even as we sang earlier, you just what you've got going on in your head and heart is condemnation from just the stuff of this week. And you know, like, I, oh, man, I know, I've done it again. Gone there again. And as we've worshipped together today, you've, you've held on with that condemnation. I invite you as we come to the table to ask forgiveness and to hear the better word. Forgiven. Freed. Loved. Whole. Maybe you've begun to, to just give your heart after something else. You know that you, you begin to live your life in pursuit of something in the place of Jesus. Like you've begun to have that thing where you're just like, that's what I need. You've got an if only. If only I had that, then I'd be satisfied. If only I had that relationship. If only I had that thing. If only I had that job. If only I had, then I would. Trust me, it won't deliver. I encourage you today to see it. Like, it's good to have a good job. I'm not saying those things are wrong. It's good to be in a secure place financially if you are. That's, that's okay. That's, that's not a bad thing. It's good to have savings. I'm not saying those things are wrong or bad. It's good to be in a great marriage. I'm not saying those things are bad or wrong. It's good to have children if you desire children. I'm not saying those things are bad or wrong. But if you make them the grounds on which you're saying, if only, then you are listening to a bad word. You're listening to a word that will not satisfy. You're listening to a word that will leave you on a treadmill of desperately seeking fulfillment and never finding it. I want to invite you as we come to the table 
to listen again to the true and better word. To find your satisfaction in him. Jesus gave us these symbols of wine and bread, a picture of his blood spilt to make purification for your sins and his body broken on the cross, that you could be made whole, that you could come back into right relationship with the Father, that you could be restored to him. Physical symbols, because it's important that as we eat and drink, we remember what he did, we come back and again, we say, Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm feasting on you. <laughs> I'm resting in you. I'm trusting in you. I'm, I'm coming to you for my satisfaction. I'm not trying to fill myself up on the things of this world, on the empty and hollow promises. I'm coming to you. I want to be satisfied in you again. I want to fill myself up on you again, Jesus. I'm going to pray for us and invite Will to lead us in communion, Johnny and the Guys, are going to lead us in a song of response. Jesus, we thank you so much that you came. We thank you that you, the living word, the creator and sustainer of all things, stepped into time and took on human flesh and paid the price for our sins that we could not possibly pay. Lord, we know the wages of sin is death and Lord, I've sinned, we've sinned, every single one of us has fallen so far short. Yet Jesus, you paid the price on our behalf that we might be forgiven. That we might be restored to relationship with the Father, that we could draw close again. Jesus, I pray today that we would hear you loud and clear as the better word that speaks life and hope and peace into our hearts. Jesus, we come to you again now. We say we, we put aside those other voices that have filled our heads and hearts and we want to listen to you again. We want to give ear to you again, the true word. Instead of condemnation. Jesus, we thank you that we can come to the table and as we repent of our sins, as we confess, we know that you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from unrighteousness that we might stand before you pure, holy, and hear your words over us, forgiven, clean, not forsaken, chosen, mine. Thank you, Jesus. We come to you again now.